The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Many of us have um, enjoyed the task of putting a a large puzzle together. It's uh, somewhat of a uh, a necessary tradition when uh, traveling with my family. Um, I suppose I didn't ask my parents this morning, but when they they go by themselves somewhere, if there's like a smaller puzzle or if there's opportunity for that, but it's it's part of the experience of when we're we're traveling together. And then, obviously, uh, it was during the the tw- the lockdowns of 2020. It became an extremely popular pastime. All of a sudden, everybody, the puzzle industry just exploded with. Uh, people interested in doing puzzles. They didn't have other things to do, or they just found that that was a, a point of interest to pass the time to create or, or do otherwise. So there was a, a substantial a boon for the industry. And because of this, more and more people have experienced the peculiar phenomena of, uh, that has plagued many a puzzler over the decades. The missing piece. A problem discovered after you've carefully framed your borders. You, you, there's a measure of order priorities. There's a there's an ordus operandi here. You, you you frame your borders. You you establish your parameters there. You you separate. You group like colors or like matters, and and then you spend hours scouring over what edges line up in a given spot. Maybe you test, and you don't test too firmly because you don't want to compromise the edges. But it's a substantial process, only to find that somewhere in this universe is a treasure of socks and puzzle pieces that have evaded detection from even the most skilled pursuers. They're just gone. They're gone. And they've disappeared without a trace and will rarely give you the satisfaction of finding them. And when they do, it's always in a cruel, taunting manner, uh, lying somewhere you've looked before, that you've searched multiple times, and then miraculously it's back. But it was in one of those moments of being robbed of the satisfaction of having successfully completed a full and challenging puzzle that I came up with an idea to overcome this most unfortunate outcome of the missing final piece. I looked at the gap. I was bothered by it. I knew the effort that I put into it. My family had shared in this effort. It was insulting that there was a lack of a, a piece there. So I found a way to plug this taunting hole. I took modeling clay. I mixed various colors until I matched the surrounding pieces by color and pattern to various extents. It wasn't perfect, but it would, uh, it would take a measure of close attention to know something was amiss. And even then, you would be too satisfied with my homemade piece to disqualify uh, the, the nature of it being successfully completed. I had finished that puzzle. I created a piece. I made it. And I made it, I think, arguably fairly good. Um, at this point in time, the clay is probably dry and shrunk and the colors have shifted, so time is not as kind to those missing pieces, but it worked. I did good work. I worked hard on the puzzle, got creative, filled in what was missing. I think that's a successful effort. But having worked in James now for some time, and in chapter 4 for a few weeks, for a number of weeks, so there's the time of, of public attention and there's the time of having built up to it and there's the time of just investing in study, I still have a gap in the text that we'll be, we're going to be advancing in today. And that's a little frustrating because I've worked on my borders. I've worked on my edges. I've found the themes. I've watched things put together. And there's still that little, little piece there. And while I will accept the praise of fellow puzzlers for my solution in filling in a, a piece of cardboard with clay, I cannot find satisfaction or allowance to be creative in filling my gaps in a text. That's just beyond what we're permitted and acceptable to do. So, ironically, in a passage that presses us toward humility, I have to acknowledge that I worked and wrestled as much as I could, 
but that I have to be content provide, to provide only a mild resolution in my conclusions with verse 5, a passage that has multiple ways that it can be translated and multiple ways that a given translation can be understood. And it's, excuse me there, I forgot to put up there. So here we have verse five. And it's not the first time I've come to a text and been less than fully resolved. And it will not be the last, but it's unique here. And some of it you're going to pick up on and some not necessarily. And that's okay. That's not the emphasis of our attention right now. But it is unique, though, in its combination of grammatical, syntactical, and theological range of possibilities. Also, as I mentioned, it's uh, most fitting to be humbled in a text that's driving us there anyway. James is driving us to humility, so why not just go ahead and embrace it? That sometimes things are difficult, and sometimes we wrestle with things, and we don't have necessarily the, the clarity that we prefer, but we have sufficient clarity. And that's part of the tension is... God's word's clear. I don't want you ever to come to the text and be like, well, you know, who can understand it? Well, by design, there's a whole doctrine, the doctrine of perspicuity of scripture, that it can be understood, that it's clear. And so we're going to wrestle through it, and I'll give you my best conclusion, and I'll speak to elements of this verse and even provide the resolution that I think is most reasonable, but it is a resolution that I've settled on and not the one I'm going to take a firm stand with beyond having a measure of satisfaction that good minds have come to a reasonable conclusion but a conclusion that differs even among some of us here. Now, again, a reason I shared that this is uh, the reason that I shared that shared that is because of the unique nature of this verse, uh, which you can see again on the screen here. It's got a wide range of differences in its translation. So you see from LSB to NASB, I think there's zero percent difference. But then as soon as you get to other major popular translations, well-respected translations, the variations are substantial. But before we delve into this matter further, let's read our full text together. The eighth major section of the book of James, which spans from chapter one, excuse me, chapter four, verses one through 10. James chapter four, verses one through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, as many of you recall, we have titled this portion of James, The Necessary Pursuit of Humility. And this title expresses the aim of this section, an aim that we need to keep before us, especially as the first half of this text is establishing a contrasting foundation for the necessary nature of humility. So again, I chose the title, but it was because of what this portion of the letter that James, I would argue, set apart as the eighth section is directing and driving us to. It's not just, well, here's some, oh, I noticed the word humility is in there. I think I'll pick that. That would make for a nice working title. 
No, it's because this is what he's driving at. So the whole first half, what's he been doing? He's been establishing a contrasting foundation. This is not humility. This is the need for humility. And he's been pressing us here. And then as we advance to the second half, we're going to see the nature of humility and how we acquire it. But first, as we work through the, the first half, we broke or as the, the passage as a whole, we broke it up into three parts. And verses one through three expressed a pleasure problem. That's part of that first half, that pleasure problem. Verses four and five that we started last week, we'll finish today and continue on just a little bit further, establishes a friendship problem. And so a, pro- a pleasure problem, a friendship problem, those establish the pride issue. The pride issue which establishes the grounds for our need for humility and presses us to pursue it. And then finally, with that being said, verses 6 through 10 provides us a humble solution, a humble solution. Now, this last week, we spent our entire time giving our primary attention to verse 4. It's always a, um, you know, people like to wager on things. I'm not going to advocate for that, but if you were uh, someone who wagers, I think Matt asked me a couple weeks ago, what do you think your timetable on James might be? And I, I, I pitched something to him and might as well put it in pencil because it's going to change um, from, from Wednesday night. I give the, the Wednesday night group, here's our review. This is where we're heading. This is what we'll potentially cover. I even mentioned it in the review video. This is what we're likely cover. And then it just, it changes and it dwindles down. But that's okay because we, we're not here to just accomplish um, running through James. We're here to produce disciples who understand the book of James and are mastering it to various extents. And so with that being said, we only covered one verse last week, and I think it was important. So we spent our entire time engaging and giving our primary attention to verse 4, where we observed James using this very firm and historically rich description, a terrible one though. So when I say a rich description, it's not because, oh, that's so precious. No, it was terrible, that of dis- which um, he described as adulteresses, and then context of rebuking those who've embraced friendship with the world. It's a really big deal, so it deserved special attention. And this is a friendship that produces enmity with God. An enmity that will ultimately find one as an enemy of God is friendship with the world and God is an impossible prospect. It's not something you just rush through. You don't just rush through uh, someone who's writing the authoritative word of God saying, adulteresses, wow, okay, why is he calling his readers or prospective readers or the larger sweep of those who would hear the letter adulteresses? Well, because there's a threat. What's the nature of the threat? That you're in covenant relationship with the Lord, and yet you've chosen another relationship, namely with this world. And that's not a, well, you know, we all make mistakes. No, it's, that's put you as an enemy of God. Those are matters we have to give attention to. And with this, we've now come to verse 5, which, as we've plainly established now, has within it the most challenging verse of the entire book on account of, again, its perspective, grammatical, syntactical, and theological possibilities. There are some texts that are just hard to get our hands around or our minds are wrestling with the, the, the weight of the concept of truth. There is some of that here, but again, there's some technical elements. And in terms of if you choose this, well, there's these routes that you need to consider or these, there's these options that you need to consider. So it, it has its challenges. Not that it can't be understood. I do think it can be understood. I think that's the design of the scriptures. But nevertheless, there are these range of possibilities, and to varying degrees, these possibilities are consistent, I would argue, with the New Testament broadly, and James in particular. So that's the difficulty. There's really good options here. There are options that will stay faithful to the development of James, and certainly faithful to the larger narrative of the New Testament scriptures. However, it begins, though, with an important question. 
that is itself both clear and itself a cause to pause. So you should pause even before you get to the hard part. You have to answer a very difficult question, a question that frames the challenging portion of the verse, but is itself challenging, not in its grammar, not in its syntax, not in its theology, but in the weight of what it's asking. Namely, as James writes, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? This is a question regarding the authoritative integrity of the scriptures, and it's placed in an emphatic position within the verse, and what follows challenging as it may be, is rooted in an inquiry regarding one's view of God's word. James wants to know, when you indulge, when you indulge in your selfish pursuit of deficient pleasures and willfully establish relationships that are hostile to God, are you doing so with the vantage point of the scriptures having any authority in such matters? Or are they like some archaic law that people humorously forget remains in the books? You know, there's almost a, a pastime for people to um, research old laws. I used to literally, when I was, um, years and years ago, when I was on, uh, in, in law enforcement, I had a, I have, now I have pocket theological dictionaries. Back then I had a pocket copy of the Georgia codes and laws, the 16 codes and the 40 codes, your criminal laws and your traffic codes. And I would just scour them and scour them. I wanted to know every little law because sometimes you get bored and you find things and you want to, to see justice satisfied. And sometimes you'll come across things you're like, really, that's a law? And it is. And so I remember, in view of that, many years ago, when I was a rookie with the police department and we were on a scene with some bad folks that needed to go, go to jail. Sometimes you run into those. Sometimes you're like, as the general public, which I'm among now, you say, why don't they do anything? Well, sometimes they can't. They know they should too, but they can't. There's certain things, there's a dance you have to do and a game you have to play. But there's some folks that needed to go to jail. There were some bad folks, but it was hard to make a case against them in that moment. But I knew enough of their situation that they could be charged with fornication, which at the time at least was still in the books in the state of Georgia. So I was quickly told to stand down as it was plainly the char a charge that would be seen as absurd as best. It's not going to hold. They're not going to go before a judge and answer for that charge. But I knew, I knew that both fornication and adultery at that time were on the books and technically had some measure of authority to be enforced. Technically, they're still misdemeanors, or they were, except that they would not be enforced. And in that context, I was laughed at. I knew it would not happen, but... Nevertheless, I was not offended. I knew I had no chance of enforcing those laws. They were still in the books. They were still had a measure of prospective authority, but no real authority. But here, listen to James. James has charged his readers with being adulteresses. It's still on the books for God. And the difference is it's still enforced. And that's the frightening thing. He's charged his readers with being adulteresses because they have covenanted with God and yet some would appear to be choosing relationship with another, with this world. And so we have a reasonable question of the laws standing here on the authority of the scriptures standing. So when James says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? It would be like saying, do you think that God's holy and perfect justice will stand as you choose the path of the wisdom from below? Do you think that there's any kind of authority, any kind of standing to that law? Or is it just one of those, you know, it, it's just, it's there, technically. Or, again, do the scriptures speak to no purpose? What a punch to the gut question. Again, 
when you're choosing this path, do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? How arrogant do we have to be to get this one wrong? But that's much to the point here as pride is expressing just that. It's an arrogance regarding God and his word. Pride would conclude that the scriptures speak to no purpose in the governing of my pleasures and the identity of my relationships. Pride would conclude that the scriptures are just an archaic message that make for good literature, polite behavior, and some favorable cultural foundations. And this is why D.A. Carson, as, as well as others, but he notably reasonably argues in his conclusion regarding the second half of this verse that the language of relationship, adultery, expressed through a profane friendship directs the matter to a righteous jealousy of God toward his people. So God's jealous toward his people regarding these matters. And this is why George H. Guthrie, in his contribution to the Expositor's Bible Commentary, agrees, stating, quote, their sinful jealousy is prompting God to righteous jealousy for our spirit. So, some very persuasive conclusions, and among the many, many, many that advance the weight of James's question regarding um, the scriptures and their authority in these matters of pleasures and relationships. And it was with a rich variety of conclusions just rattling around in my head, trying to wrestle through them. Is it little s or capital S? Is it who's the subject here? Who's the acting agent? What's the order of things that I finally came to William Varner's engagement of this challenging text? And while I know, I'm, I'm very aware, I have a partiality toward Dr. Varner. He was a faithful pastoral figure for uh, Denise and I for many years, cared for us well. He's a strong, faithful man in the scriptures and really uniquely given himself to the book of James. So I am partial to him. And I'm also, though, aware of my responsibility is to teach the text. It's not to say, well, what would Dr. Varner say? It doesn't matter. My charge is, what does James say? And if Dr. Varner can help me, then I'm very grateful for that, as I'm grateful for anybody's help. So whether I agree with him or not is not the issue. And I'm grateful I often do agree with him. And he was not the only one, though, to promote some form of the conclusion that I've reached. And I think that, you know, he just happened to do it with a greater clarity. So I'm going to lean on him just a little bit more this time. And I settled here because for me it was the plainest, the clearest, and most contextually consistent conclusion. That was important for me. I've wrestled with James for months now. I wanted to reach a conclusion that I knew should be plain, should be cleared, and contextually consistent. Now, a lot of them are contextually consistent. A lot of them have most of those elements. And for other people, they'd say hit every one of them. But here we are. A conclusion that argues that we should consider seeing verse 5 as two questions rather than one. A matter that I've already softly set you up for in how I've begun my own engagement with this text. But it's a conclusion that changes a number of dynamics here, perhaps most plainly in that it takes what may well be an unnecessary tension away from the text, a tension of hunting for a source to what has for many become a confusing, if not inconclusive, statement regarding the Spirit and its disposition. Now, that's a little cryptic, and I'm sorry for that, but that's a significant element of the tension that's present here. I just want you to know it relieves some of the tension that's behind the scenes. You can wrestle with it. There's a lot to be wrestled with. But putting that on the shelf at this time, let me focus on the conclusion I've most, I found most suitable and not so much in the variants uh, and their complexities. So Varner argues the passage might actually read something like this. Do you suppose that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Question mark. That's where I landed. It's where actually I, I pressed you to start us off here. 
Does the spirit that he is caused to dwell in us long enviously? So with this format in view, the first question advances the rebuke that is carried through the first half of the chapter. So we've seen the, the development of this rebuke as it's been building and it's continuing it here, much like I was already aiming to do for you just a moment ago. It sees that these are uh, it sees these as questions that exposes the offense. So the questions we've already seen priming us for this moment, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And then you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And now, do you suppose the scriptures speak to no purpose? So I think he's using a, a string of questions here. He's, he's weaving those smaller thematic elements developing there's a problem with pride there's a problem with pride of such a nature that's unbefitting the spirit that he's caused to dwell within us so the question here it clearly implies a negative answer no of course of course the answer is no the scriptures do speak with a clear and authoritative purpose and then we have the next question does the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us long enviously a question that implicitly also has a negative answer. And with this, Varner concludes, the answer to the question would be as follows. No, the spirit that God has caused to dwell in us does not long enviously. In other words, God did not create humankind this way, i.e. with a spirit that longs enviously. This is because God is the source of only good. And this in turn sets us up for the, for the contrast that opens the next sentence and with it, what the scriptures do actually say, thereby stripping selfish pleasures, wicked relationships, and pride of their cover and their excuses, exposing that you choose this path, you choose the path of the wisdom from below. This was not God's design, but a consequence of the fall, a consequence that you have not properly forsaken by way of repentance, but have embraced in selfish indulgences. And if you were in Christ, then you've drifted onto a grossly inconsistent path from which you must be restored if you have gone down this prideful wisdom from below route. Therefore, you would need to be restored to a submission of proper pleasures and a proper friendship. And for this, there's something that we're intimately familiar with and so ever grateful for. James tells us for this, this necessary restoration, there's grace. There's grace specifically for the humble. It's not unqualified grace that, oh, people make mistakes, they go down these roads, they, they become adulteresses, indulging in relationships with this world and, and finding pleasures that are deficient and pleasures that are contradictory to the things of God and reflections of their own morbid selfishness. But you know, it happens, there's grace. Maybe it'll hit you like a surprise shower every so often. No, he says there's grace for the humble. Now, Friends will charitably disagree with this conclusion, and I'm okay with that here. Again, concurring with uh, Dr. Varner in this, whatever you may be, or whatever may be one's final decision regarding the perplexing translation and interpretation of 4-5, the various renderings have a single common point. This is where I would want to direct our attention in terms of where we can all land. God's people are indwelled by a spirit, spirit from God, whether that's capital S or little s, you can wrestle with that. And there's no way in which that living presence is compatible with promptings of self-interest that are destructive of peace among the brothers. So, while this is not how it ought to be, 
this pride-fueled journey down the path of the wisdom from below, James reminds us of something so critically important. God gives a greater grace. God gives a greater grace. A greater grace that is more than sufficient for one's needs. So what's the nature of this greater grace? Well, people have wrestled through that uh, in terms of what is he contrasting? How is he developing it? James doesn't give us a lot in terms of precise direction, but we can deduct from the totality of the scriptures and from the, the nature of James's message so we can conclude that it's grace for the day, grace for the struggles, grace for the drifting, and grace for the failures. Pride would seem to have such a, an insatiable appetite. It's never satisfied. And we saw that you want these things. You want these things. You ask. You war. You ask. You so desire so many things in your selfish pride. And it dishonors the Lord. And yet here, out of an abundance of grace, what's God's response? He gives. He gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. And as we'll go on to see through the duration of this section of James, it is a grace provided in the context of repentance and restoration, the path pursued by the wise and the mature. And to season our thoughts here as to what a greater grace looks like, I have two passages that come, have come to mind. There may be dozens or even hundreds that are kind of flooding into your minds, and that's, that's wonderful. That's a part of our uh, experience and knowing and, and, and having, having enjoyed the grace of God and its manifold expressions. But here, I would argue, one could be uh, when Peter inquired of Jesus as to how many times ought to he have, how many times ought to he have forgiven his brother, or how many times should I forgive my brother? And he throws it out there up to seven times. That's a big one, up to seven times. And Jesus responds with what? Seventy times seven. Forgive and continue forgiving, exercising a like mercy that you too have received. And consider what immediately preceded that engagement as it's recorded in Matthew's gospel so that you might better appreciate that that is an expression of mercy, but also I'd argue it's grace upon grace. And what immediately precedes it? Well, this engagement is preceded by Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Um, excuse me, uh, Matthew 21 to 35, 18, 21 to 35 is, is Peter's engagement. It's preceded by 15 through 20, which speaks to church discipline. Church discipline, how do we view that? It's restorative discipline. It has an aim, that you'd win back your brother. Itself a passage that was preceded by verses 12 through 14, the parable of the lost sheep. What's the nature of the lost sheep? It's not a story about, well, yep, I had 100 sheep, but yeah, down to 99 now. No, it was 99 were left, one was recovered, I have 100 again. It was restored. There was grace upon grace. Greater grace, a restorative and humbling grace. And the other passage that comes to mind here is what has been commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, a beautiful story that brings the offending protagonist to a place of utter humiliation and a desire to only be partially restored, hoping to be made as a servant to his father. He's not even pursuing full reconciliation. He just wants at least enough. He's so humiliated that would be presumptuous to pursue a full restoration. At least I can be a slave to my father. But what's the father's response? The father is found to be waiting and then running to his son, his beloved son, whom he generously restores. 
Luke 15, 20, so he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So this wayward son immediately became the recipient of a greater grace, a profusely humbling, but greater grace. And I want you to see that, that natural union of humility and the reception of grace, because that's exactly where James is directing us. That's the path of wisdom. It's the path of maturity. There's the, the pride-filled, selfish, indulgent, destructive path that many have wandered down and that we have a propensity to go down. But then he pauses, but God gives greater grace. And that greater grace will be expressed through repentance and humility, and they're naturally coupled together. Now, again, as I've stated, this grace is humbling, but we need not miss to whom it's applied. It's applied to the humble. It's not just a humbling grace, but that's who it's applied to. He doesn't just give grace, just kind of, here, have a little bit of grace. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We have grace that we'd like to hand out. No, it is grace given to the humble. And we'll soon come to see this, but first we must recognize that such a wonderful news or such wonderful news follows a most terrible reality, though. Namely, as the scripture records here, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, before we work through this citation from Proverbs, I would again remind you that the first half of this section uh, of James, verses 1 through 5, it was difficult. And there are yet more challenges ahead. Uh, there was difficulties in terms of how he engages his readers and Guess what? Looking ahead, he's going to use such titles now as sinners and the double-minded. Titles that very good teachers, commentators, and pastors wrestle through and say, again, not for the church. You don't call the, 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 those who are beloved in Christ sinners. That's a title that is exclusively used for the unregenerate, a past condition. And that's true, I would argue, for everywhere but here. And when you say everywhere but here, you have a, a burden there, don't you? And then also things like the double-minded. We know the double-minded are. They're the ones who lack faith to even ask for wisdom. And so it is troubling things that we've walked through, through the, those who war, those who battle, those who are selfish, those who are friends of the world, those who are adulterers. But there's more difficult times ahead. But it's going to forge us and continue to forge us toward humility and thereby the receiving of grace, advancing maturity, perfection, completion. But here, as we come to this text, we also observe again that, that rooting of a transition in Proverbs 3.34. And this would be what I would call a hinge point of this eighth major section of James. Not every section has a hinge point. Not every section has a point of transition. Or a, 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 uh, even in the letter, there's not always those. But sometimes they're there and sometimes they're very pronounced. And I'd say this is very clearly the case. So here we have... James referencing Proverbs 3.34. And if you flip there, you, I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to do it. Well, you're welcome to do it now. Um, you'd be like, well, it's slightly different. Well, if you were looking in your Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, you'd say, ah, he did. It's exactly cited there. He changed Lord for God or God for Lord. But um, it's otherwise exactly there from the Hebrew, excuse me, from the Greek Septuagint. And here he's using it in such a way, not just to introduce a valid point, but to really 
shift the discussion. It's a hinge. It's a hinge for this eighth major section of James, a hinge point that not only transitions the attention from the proud to the humble, but in this makes the clearest connection to the whole of the section be an expression of wisdom, as James explicitly quotes from Proverbs. Now, we've seen this before as well. And so, again, we'd argue, well, of course it's wisdom. He's talked about wisdom. He's carrying that theme of wisdom over. He's contrasting it and developing it. But we look at how authors handle different passages, and I think there's good argument to say that when he explicitly cites from Proverbs in a context of talking about wisdom and transitioning subjects that he's saying, wisdom, I want you to understand that this is the testimony of the scriptures. This is what wisdom looks like. And we saw something just like this as he engaged in the subject of the law in chapter two, and he quoted Leviticus. Leviticus in chapter two, where he's saying this is the royal law. You want to understand the, the expression, the totality, a summation of the law? And he cites Leviticus, kind of a core element of what we would call um, the, one of the two greatest commandments. And so also here he's citing Proverbs and directing our attention kind of doubly so, that this is wisdom. God's word speaks to the matter of wisdom, and he's directing us toward wisdom. And so what does wisdom say? That God is opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. So where, again, whereas we saw the plain contrast with wisdom and an outworking of the antithesis to wisdom in verses 1 through 5, here in verse 6, he's explicitly drawing our attention to Proverbs, making the transition and the whole of the section's argument clear that wisdom exercises itself in humility and God's attention to this matter is paramount. Now, once more, Verses 1 through 5, how did we see this develop? Well, we were focused on the proud there. You see those two sections. What are they saturated on? Pleasure problem, friendship problem. It's a problem with pride. We saw that. We worked through it. Then verses six, verse 6 provides a hinge that transitions us to, from the proud to the humble. And then verses 7 through 10, what would the focus be? It's going to focus on the humble. So we have a focus, the development of the, the, the antithesis, the proud, this hinge, verse 6, and now the humble, and God's response to the humble, and what he gives the humble, and how the outcome of the humble is that of a wise path, a mature path. So that being said, we're now transitioning from the problem of pride, which is again expressed through a pleasure problem, a friendship problem, to now the humble solution. And we begin with, God is opposed to the proud. And I talked about this Wednesday, and I, I just don't know that we we're so comfortable and familiar with certain things um, that I don't know that we're quite getting our hands around this. Again, I think if we heard a like statement regarding some other context, um, I was sharing on Wednesday night that if I was walking up here following uh, the scripture reading this morning, and Frank just looked at me and said, I know you're coming to a different conclusion in verse 5. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. He's like, oof. And he just kind of push, pushes back a little bit. And he says, you know what? You're not going up there today. He would be like, what in the world? Frank is opposing David. It'd get your attention, wouldn't it? It'd probably it'll be disconcerting. That our, our live stream would probably go viral for 10 minutes in terms of pastor versus pastor. And Frank wins. It's just what it is. But nevertheless, I'd put up a good fight. It'd be embarrassing. But it, it'd happen. That kind of opposing would get your attention, right? But you know what? We're just folks. We're, we will pass through this scene and be quickly forgotten. 
And so I want you to capture as much as we can. I don't know how we can press ourselves in a proper way to hear this as we ought to. God, the Lord of glory, is opposed to the proud. To me, that's a striking and terrible statement for the proud. And what's terrifying is that we drift toward being proud. So to have God oppose you is, I would say, a terrifying and yet a justly righteous, ruinous conclusion. So it's terrifying and it's perfectly just in its ruinous conclusion. And I think we especially, uh, when, I think we, especially when we elect a path of pride, just mostly, be, mostly believe this. I don't think we really fully believe this. Otherwise, I don't think we would actually act on it. Um, some of you have seen, um, I don't know where this is in the world, and I, d- I wouldn't advocate going. Why would you spend your money to be terrified? Um, but there's, I've seen little silly clips where there's like a Grand Canyon-like experience and a glass floor, and it's got a digital screen in it. And as people step on it, you know what happens? The screen looks like it cracks. I don't know. I have enough things that naturally frighten me in this life that I don't need to introduce new things. And it's already intimidating to walk on a a platform like that because you know a misstep and I'm gone. You step on glass and you're thinking, hmm, glass? And then to manipulate yourself with the glass apparently shattering, what a bizarre thing. And I think in the same way, that's kind of how we're treating such matters here, that we mostly believe this. We mostly believe that, yeah, there's a danger there. Ooh, it's scary. The glass looked like it broke. Again, I think if we really understood this, we'd be paralyzed. Lord, I didn't mean to be proud. Lord, I didn't want to be proud. Because he opposes the proud. You know, even the most extraordinary, extraordinarily fit athletes who engage in personal combat sports, such as wrestling, boxing, now more commonly popular mixed martial arts, they compete in weight classes and divisions. Uh, that's how they they, they pick their opponents, as it were. Obviously, you, you work your way up as you win your competitions, but it's, it's within weight classes still. So you have those who are the welterweights, and they, I believe in this varies to some extent in some places, but I think it's up to 170 pounds. You, they're not going to fight a heavyweight. A heavyweight, I think the category for them is up to 200 pounds, and then you have the super heavyweights that are beyond that. And you think, well, 30 pounds, that's not much of a, a difference. I mean, it's, you know... It's a bit of a difference, but 30 pounds, 30 pounds, it's, not, it's like a big dog. But it's a huge difference in competition. But yet such a relatively little difference in size and weight can make, again, a magnificent, more challenging opponent. It's just, it's not fair anymore, even for a preeminent athlete. And we can get our minds around that, right? We can understand, well, of course. And yet again, we'll cavalierly take on the folly of pride only to find ourselves opposed by God. It's not a 30-pound difference here. This is he who created and sustains all things and dust. So that's frightening. And needless to say, it's a foolish and immature thing to engage in such a matter cavalierly. The antithesis to what James has been pressing us to throughout this letter, namely maturity, perfection, and completion by means of the wisdom that comes from above, a wisdom that is humble, And again, James has been priming us for this warning, has he not? Opposing man. You're warring, battling, and murdering. We saw that in verses 1 and 2. Opposing God, obstructive prayer, and outright opposition, 1 through 4. But ultimately, again, this is an opposition we can't truly get our minds around. 
But we have a few clues now and an occasional peak here. So a few clues, Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. An abomination, that which is putridly disgusting to God. It's the nature of pride. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a terrifying opponent to have. I knew a man, uh, this is years ago, and don't try to guess who it was, and it's nobody here, and don't be like, Andre? No, it wasn't Andre. He was certifiably crazy. Um, <laughs> insane for a, a period of his life. Um, because he got into his head that he had, had insulted a mobster in a bar, and they were going to hunt him down and cut him to pieces. So he spent an unmounted, I don't remember how long, he probably told me, an, an, an inordinate time on the run, frantically hiding in the woods and living on the run, just terrified. Because if he was right, then it was not so crazy after all. You should run. It'd be quite terrifying to have your life in such a precarious balance, and yet we can hear again the words of Jesus telling us, do not fear such a person. Don't fear them who can only kill the body, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul and hell. Or consider one of the many historic examples that we could draw from, this one from uh, this one documenting Belshazzar's wicked pride before his righteous judgment, an engagement um, that also recollects Nebuchadnezzar's um, own time of profound humiliation. We'll pick up in the book of Daniel chapter 5, um, after he was profanely abusing the sacred items pillaged from the temple in Jerusalem and had observed the handwriting on the wall, a message that, had lef- uh, that was left and that could not be interpreted, and so Daniel was summoned, and he begins his engagement as follows. O king, the Most High God granted the kingdom, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father, and because of the grandeur he, which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue feared and were in dread before him, Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he kept alive, and whomever he wished, he raised up, and whomever he wished, he made low. But when his heart was raised up, and his spirit became so strong that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from the sons of men, and his heart was made like that of beast, and his place of habitation was with the wild donkeys." He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of the sky until he knew that the Most High God is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and then he sets up over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not made your heart lowly even though you knew all this, but you have raised yourself up against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you And you and your nobles and your wives, your concubines, have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not honored. The blinding passions of pride led to utter rebelliousness and a disdainful absence of worship. And God opposes such persons. And you may think that's such a radical example, but I would argue that this may well be more common than you realize. That is common in proportion to one's opportunity and standing. Given the opportunity in a light context, your pride would have manifested itself in the same way. You just lack opportunity. 
Because pride is not all that different. It just has more and fewer opportunities to flourish. So do not be so foolish as to see what may be your own pleasure problem or friendship problem as anything short of what it is. It is a pride problem. Likely one with a similar opportunity to flourish. Excuse me, likely one with a, a smaller opportunity to flourish, but not one so small as to not be opposed. And consider the opponent. Again, this last week, um, some of you may have followed in the news, there was a, a green comet passing by the earth. I don't know if anybody actually saw it or not. And they said it hasn't happened in however many um, fill-in-the-blank um, made-up decades and centuries and years. And it didn't sound especially close to me. It sounded like that's really, really, really far away. But it was apparently it was close enough for people to see it. And with this, I found it entertaining as some people reported their interest and excitement that this comet is so old that it has original particles from the formation of the universe within its uh, composition, and its tail was effectively creation dust. And it was speculated that this comet's trail has a story to tell, a story of the beginning, as it were. So they wanted to, what can we see about how it all began? And so I was curious, well, does it carry the echo of the creator's voice? Can you hold green comet dust up to your ear and hear, let there be? Like, wow, that's how it started. No, of course not. But yet it does carry his voice. It carries the testimony of his glory, as does all creation. And again, would you have such a one as your opponent? Can your pride withstand that? Because God is opposed to the proud. That's not the conclusion of the statement, though, is it? No. And this is where James is pressing us for the duration of this section of the letter. And thankfully so. He doesn't stop with God being opposed to the proud and just leaving us with uh, just utterly dejected and in ruin because we're proud. But he finishes the statement with, but God gives grace to the humble. So we've noted very clearly here, God gives a greater grace, but that giving is qualified as a grace given to the humble. And here I found um, Kent Hughes' um, illustration particularly helpful here that of what he calls God's, uh, the application of God's greater grace, he expressed it as uh, the gravity of grace. And he noted that like the flow of water, it rushes to the lowest point. That's where you'll find grace, in the humble places. The higher and more pronounced an area, the less saturation of benefit, but the more or the lower places are where the waters pool and rush about. And so it is with God's grace as it pertains to the proud and to the humble. And this is no surprise, is it? As this is, was the company that Jesus not only associated with, but the company he most naturally fit in as well, as he himself demonstrated perfect humility. Stating in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we know that just as he taught, so also he exemplified in Mark chapter 10 and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, an expression of pride in their leadership. And the great men exercised authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, we see this very truth testified so clearly by Paul, and it's a testimony of humility that would ultimately yield to a testimony of glory, as we will soon see even here in James as he finishes this section. But first we see in Philippians 2, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, are we really surprised that when we take on the character of the beloved son, that we would receive grace upon grace? I think that's the most natural place to expect to receive grace upon grace. Because the testimony is clear and it's long-standing. God gives grace to the humble. We've already seen this so plainly that God generously gives wisdom. We saw that in chapter 1. We saw later God generously gives all good things. And again, now we see that for the humble, God gives grace. Even a greater grace at that. And with this, And James has gone from throwing us in a violent lurch with the opening of this chapter from beloved, beloved brothers, to this is wisdom, this is how you walk, to just completely shocking us with how he engages the opening of this. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you and and his dressing us down? So he, he shocked us with how he began it. And then he continues with the change of now of a course one that brings resolution to the woeful problem of pride. And what's that resolution? Well, that solution, that resolution is humility. A humility forged in obedience whose foundations are found in repentance. And so if you're wondering, boy, I recognize pride problem. I clearly recognize I've put myself in opposition to God, and that's a, that's a terrible burden. The, the next reasonable question is, what do I do? You humble yourselves. By what means? Well, you repent. And this is why we come to therefore in verse 7. A therefore that takes us from the wisdom of Proverbs 3 to the necessary course of action through the end of this section in verse 10. And as we, get, as we will work through verses 7 through 10, we're going to see a barrage of commands here. Note the first command up to this point in this whole section because he was establishing the painful foundations that our pride has established before transitioning us to the necessary place of humility. A humility whose foundations are expressed in submission to God, which is why he begins this final portion here. Be subject, therefore, to God. It's our first command in this whole section. A book that's so filled with commands and expectations and pressing us to wisdom and pressing us to maturity builds a case for how terrible pride is, how terrible God's opposition to pride is, and now we're prepared for what do we do? You subject yourselves, therefore, to God. And from this foundation, we're going to be given three clusters of commands. The first coming in verses 7 and 8 with contrasting experiences of the devil fleeing and the Lord drawing near. So two very radical responses there. You, you oppose the devil, you resist. Same like language of re- resisting and opposing. You resist the devil and he flees from you. you know, don't get too weird, excited about, oh, I met the devil, run. Don't slide back into arrogance. 
it's being contrasted with the, you oppose, you resist the devil, he flees from you. And what does the Lord do when you draw near to him? He draws near to you. The second cluster of commands coming in verses 8, where there's a necessary cleansing of hands and heart. And so we see the, the cleansing of actions and motivations. So we had worked through a number of weeks there with, show me your hands. I want to see actions. I want to see works. I want to see that faith has works, that um, that, hum, um, excuse me, that wisdom has works. Now we're also going to see that humility has works, but the works of humility are the cleansing of those hands. And it's also going to be the cleansing of the heart. And then the third cluster of commands coming in verse 9 with the somber expressions of repentance, working themselves out from our inner man to our outer expressions. Be miserable, be mourning, cry, even laughter turning into mourning and joy to gloom. And it's not that... Boy, James is such a morose, such a sad, such a depressing man to be around, but well, he'll get you to maturity. You're just going to be miserable in the process. No, he's saying this is but a season in response to your pride. And it's going to be the resolution to the pride problem, which is humility. And humility is humbling. And it's all for a season because when we finish, we come to the irony of humility, namely that the humble will be exalted. They don't exalt themselves. They are exalted. An exaltation absent of pride as it's centered in Christ, not on our deficient pleasures, not on our morbid affection for this world, or even our pursuit of exaltation by the one who would oppose us, but now the one who opposes will esteem. And while this humility is forged in the painful path of repentance, it bears one of the plainest marks of our advancing and being made perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing by means of the wisdom that comes from above. And so as we conclude for today, may we never so think or walk in such a way that it would be fitting for, for, um, to ask us, do you think the scriptures speak to no purpose? What a condemning question. Because no, the scriptures speak clearly and we have heard them and we will seek help that we might also heed the wisdom that they offer us. Namely, that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we couldn't have a more perfect opponent to the gross nature of pride. And perhaps if we had something less, we'd be tempted to think that it's not that big of a deal. Perhaps if, if we were told that... Um, and righteous men and women will oppose you if you're proud. We would just think, well, it's okay. It's not okay, though. Thankfully, righteous men and women will oppose us under a Matthew 18 perspective in the sense of restoring us, and the, in the sense of James uh, 5, 19, and 20, in the sense of restoring us. Because that's not where we want to be. That's not where you would have us. That's not the nature of brothers and beloved well that, that's the that's the engagements we want back from james that's the engagements we want back from the the text and with one another but we had to slug it through the painful nature of pride first to examine our our selfish motivation our our personal deficient pleasures and our indulgent with our indulgences with relationship with this world that puts us at enmity with you and we saw today just how pronounced that enmity is, that you oppose the proud. So Lord, would, 
that in itself producing us a, a proper fear, a proper um, sober awareness, and also a refreshing realization that the one who opposes the proud gives grace, gives greater grace, an abundance and saturation of grace, but it's to the humble, to those who have been made low, to those who have recognized their proper standing before the Lord of glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to give us a like wisdom. Lord, help us to ask properly and in faith, knowing that you do give wisdom. And again, may that wisdom express itself with us walking in humility, recognizing that as painful and in many ways as unattractive in the moment as humility is, it will advance us toward being made perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Because it's going to make us like Christ, who was perfectly humble, now gloriously esteemed, just as we know that you also will exalt the humble. Not that you're making much of us, but you're making much of yourself through us. And so, Lord, would you be pleased again, give us that grace and help us to walk in that wisdom that we would have more, even more of that grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.